Christians should not have a low view of work. They should have a high view of vocation. And I talk about that and more with author David Bonson on this episode of This is Foster. David, thanks for joining me. How would you best sum up the focus of your work, at least for the last several years? How would I uh, summarize the focus of my work? Sure. The focus of your work, the top of your work, uh, kind of give people an introduction of what you've been trying to accomplish the last decade or so. Yeah, I um, feel very strongly at a, a high level that there needs to be Christian application, Christian worldview brought to uh, finance. And I look at finance as a means to an end. I view uh, capital markets and, and finance as something that is uh, pivotally important. And enterprise, but enterprise is really uh, the meeting of human needs. And there are exchanges that take place in the marketplace. And in a market economy, we do that a lot more productively with a lot more satisfactory results uh, by utilizing effectively financial markets. So I love the idea that I get to do all at once two things that I care about a great deal. And one is uh, utilize financial markets that I feel like I know well and have studied and have developed an expertise in as a tool to number two, um, meeting human needs and accompanying them to real life people with real life situations. And so that has been the focus of my uh, professional life for 25 years. Uh, over the last, I'd say 10 or so, I've tried to couple that to utilizing the platform I have, having been successful in this business, to being also a really vocal advocate for uh, the juxtaposition of markets and morality, for a distinctly Christian view of free enterprise. And so I get all at once to actually manage money, to do it for actual people, but then also to sort of try to be as much as I can be, as much as people are interested in me being so, a thought leader around what this all means ideologically, intellectually, spiritually, and so forth. So um, the, that, that's really the focus of my, of my calling, my professional life. And in a lot of ways, these things all overlap a great deal, but there's kind of some fun distinctions in there. Yeah, it's really helpful. Um- some people will know uh, that you had a father that was an influential minister in a lot of circles. So your father was a pastor, a minister. And as far as I know, you decided not to go that path. I'm a pastor and uh, my oldest son uh, loves the church. He loves me, but he's like, dad, I don't ever want to be a pastor. I'm glad other people do. Why did you uh, decide not to follow in your father's footsteps and, and pursue business? Well, I think I did follow in my father's footsteps because my father was a devout Hyperion, a devout Calvinist. And I think that applying what he believed about worldview theology, about a world and life view that um, is what a truly Christian philosophy and understanding represents, I think one could choose to focus it in, as my dad was, as a public intellectual, as a um, vocational minister, or one could choose to do so as a computer programmer. And and I happen to do so in the world of finance. But in a lot of ways, I really view it the same way I do my dad's own career of me trying to apply 
what I believe about the truth claims of the gospel to a particular field in which I want to have mastery and dominion. But the other thing I have to say for those that are familiar with dad, and this for some reason bothers some people, but um, anyone who knew him knows what I'm about to say is incredibly true because he said it to them too. The last person on God's green earth who wanted me to follow his footsteps vocationally was him. (laughs) There was nothing he wanted me to do less than go become a seminary professor and, and a pastor. And that's not because he was unsatisfied in his calling. I think he had a hard life in a lot of ways. And yeah. I think he carried carried some, you know, some of the bruises of what had been a tough uh, uh, ministry existence. He died at a very young age. He was only in his 40s. But um, my dad and I are very, very close. Uh, he was my hero, my mentor. He's the smartest human being I've ever been around. And he really wanted me to pursue a field like what I've ended up pursuing, something in business, something in the marketplace. And he never saw that as distinct from ministry. I mean, if if Greg Bonson was anything, it was an anti-dualist. That's really helpful. How would you uh, explain, you said Kuyperian, so Abraham Kuyper, how how would you kind of explain Kuyper's main thought in a, you know, in a minute or two to help people kind of wrap their head around that? Well, this is me speaking for myself now, because a moment ago I was talking about my dad's love of Kuiper. My dad would probably agree with everything I'm about to say, but I'm speaking for myself. I view Kuiper as the second Calvin. I think Calvin was really the kind of initial Protestant reformer that introduced us at a really magical way, a majestic way to um, the full worldview applied of Christianity, a life view of our faith. Kuiper happened to, a couple centuries later, apply it and attach to it some nomenclature uh, that we would call sphere sovereignty. And I think Kuiper's understanding of distinguishing the sphere of uh, state, church, family, and what that meant in society was profound. But he did it all under um, the assumption of the Lordship of Christ, under the desire of the Lordship of Christ, and he famously uh, I had a line that has, thank God, been preserved over these last 150 years about um, there not being one square inch that uh, the Lord, that Christ doesn't uh, say in his mind. And I think that that is essentially Calvinism applied. That's what I mean by Kuiper. That's what I refer to as some of these great uh, Dutch theologians that became really impactful in my life as I studied them more. And in a lot of ways, what I want to see happen with different spheres of God's kingdom is, I think, what can be called accurately a Kuyperian vision. Mm. I read uh, When Fathers Ruled by Stephen Osmet. And um, one thing that really impacted me about that book, Osmet's kind of a Calvin scholar, historian, kind of popular level. Um, And one of his arguments is that the Reformation wasn't just a, a sort of a recovery of of salvation by faith and some of those key solas or whatever, uh, but also of a Christian view of of the family, of marriage, of sex, children, the goodness of all that. And a thing he doesn't really focus on there, but has stuck out to me, is also uh, a recovery of a of a doctrine of vocation, right? Of mm-hmm. how important it is, and those are the things. Even when I look at uh, kind of the broader reformed world, uh, new Calvinism, kind of the reformedish evangelicals that they they do have a love of like 
sola scriptura and all that stuff that's very important but where they're really lacking is in their anthropology what it means to be a man or a woman um they they need to be more developed but also that the side of business and vocation like uh a lot of times when i'm kind of counseling young men well a question i like to ask about how they're like how do i find a girl how do i get married you know and i always just say well tell me a little bit about your vocational pursuits what's going on there like what what are you trying to develop and they really haven't um haven't been taught that that's something they should be doing and that's a good thing and a worthy thing and that's such a huge part of a man's life and you've written a book that is either out or about to come out and i heard you give about it to, to come out yeah yeah um it seems it seems to me that that book touches on some of that issues or some of those issues could you speak to that yeah it's interesting i think the way you put it it's so important that um a lot of people don't know they, they get kind of zealous about their faith. They, they get excited. They're, they're a believer. They have certain theological understandings. Now they take them to heart. And uh, beyond that, they, they then might even kind of absorb some ABCs about, yeah, I got to be a good husband. I got to be a good father. And that's going to look different as a Christian than it would if I wasn't a Christian. That's all good. And then the job thing, they, they aren't necessarily taught about like your vocation matters or work matters. You got to do a good job. So there's a sense in which you could just write a book saying, hey, we got to tell everyone it matters. But the bigger problem, I think, Pastor, is that a lot of people are told it matters, but they're told it in the wrong way and for the wrong reasons and with the wrong consequences. They're told that it matters by utilitarian criteria. Mm. Like, hey, now that you're a Christian, your job matters. Oh, really? How come? Tell me more. Because you need to be a provider. Well, you do need to be a provider. That is not why your job matters. That is a benefit of your job mattering, but that is not the end. It is one of the means to the end and only one of them at that. Um, you want to be a tither. That's a byproduct of, uh, of earning a living. That's a good thing. It's an obligation, ethical duty. Uh, we uh, bless others in doing it and we're blessed by doing it. It's not why we work. We don't work for the 10%. Okay, this to me is the challenge the church has, is to sustain the good intentions of some of the utilitarian benefits of work, with, but at the same time recovering the big thing, the real thing, which is that inherently our work matters and is a key part of defining who we are, and that this is from creation. This is true because of anthropology, that it is not true of the animal kingdom. It is not true of the plant kingdom, but it is true of how God made us in the garden and why he made us in the garden. And there's a lot of other things about the why and the how that matter too. He did make us with individual dignity and he did make us as social animals. He did make us to be in families. He did make us to be in communion with others. By, by the way, first to be in communion with him. Mm -hmm. There's all sorts of these things that are really important in how we understand the sociology of the human person. But the fact that God was a worker who worked for six days and rested on the seventh, and that the entire creation of the world centers around that paradigm and how we don't start with that beautiful message is to me, theological malpractice. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. 
Dorothy Sayers wrote, uh, it was an article I read years ago called why work fantastic little article. And, uh, I quoted, I quoted, I quoted heavily in my new book. Do you? Okay, great. And, (laughs) and one thing, you know, so people have been very critical of Tim Keller for justifiable reasons, but having followed his ministry really in the early 2000s, he's the one that introduced me to Dorothy Sayers and introduced me to kind of a Christian doctrine of vocation. If uh, someone said, a 12-year-old kid said, you know, why work? What, what, what's the purpose of work? What, how, what would be your answer? Well, I believe that work matters to God because the worker matters to God and that work carries with it both a subjective and objective element that the subject of work is the person doing the work and the object of work is the person being served in that work. And God cares about all of the above. And I think that in work, we are act out as image bearers of God, that we are, um, regardless of how people are somewhat offended by the theological vocabulary here, it doesn't make it any less accurate. We become co-creators with God. We extract from the potential of creation the actual that he wants us to to create that was part of our mandate from Genesis 1, 26 through 28. That cultivation of the garden, that stewardship of creation, that ruling over the earth, that creativity uh, bringing to this process our enterprising abilities that have innovative properties, that have creative properties, that have productive capacity. This is why God made us. That's why the 12-year-old works. Now, after sin entered the world, then the curse meant that sometimes work was going to be hard and frustrating and physically painful. And the uh, exegetical analogy I use out of curses is that I do not know a person who believes that children are a curse. I don't know a non-Christian who believes it. I guess I know some non-Christians that act like it, but I don't know people that would say, yeah, your children are a curse. But we do know that the pains of childbirth uh, were a byproduct of the curse after the fall. And likewise, the very next passage that refers to the curse of the toil, the sweat of our brow, in no place does it say the work was a curse but that it was accompanied by a certain pressure and a a certain anxiety and sometimes physical toil um, that became more challenging than I I think the uh, pre-fall, the more Edenic conditions of work would have entailed. That distinction to me is very important. Um, We don't need to throw, no pun intended, the baby out with the bathwater. Childbirth is painful. Raising children is glorious. Uh, shoveling in the ground is painful. Uh, work itself is glorious. And this is the model of scripture. And I go on in the book to uh, extrapolate, expand upon a much more expansive um, exegesis for what work really means. And I think people will find a lot of it fascinating. There's a lot of verses in the Bible we read in the clear English at face value, and, and they're wonderful but we're missing some of the glory embedded in the passage. Uh, um, Ephesians 2.10, you know, comes to mind that God creating us for good work. Uh, he, we assume good works. Like he created us to go be nice and help the poor and, mm-hmm. and love one another, which I happen to believe all those things, but that's not what that passage says. What it says, he created us to go do good work. And it's referring 
to our jobs, our vocations, and and that uh, that workmanship matters. So the glory of being a human versus being a turtle is that uh, we have a soul that will never die. We have an eternal destiny, and we're part of Christ's redemptive plans in history. And a turtle is not. And what that means that is most practical between us and the turtle is work, is vocation, is the ability to be creative, productive, and innovative. And what that means in a modern economy is in a vocational context. So um, that's what I would say to the 12-year-old. So I was born in 1980, so real, real young, youngest Gen X, I think. I think it was like the last, last or second, last year. And I remember when I went to college, my first semester, went to Northern Kentucky University for my undergrad. It was $1,500. So if I really worked crazy hours during summer and winter break, I might be able to pay for a year's college, right? You can't really do that uh, almost at all anymore. Um, tuition costs so much. And a lot of parents are trying to figure out uh, how to direct their children in finding a good vocation, working that out. Um, and there's kind of intense rhetoric around college, like you should absolutely do it. Or uh, kind of in my circles, uh, almost antagonistic. The college is a waste of money and the ROI is not there. <laughs> Part of me is pretty sympathetic to that because everything that I've done uh, business-wise has not depended on my education one bit, um, or at least not directly on my credentials. Um, what what would you say about the issue of finding a vocation and is college, how should we think about college as a worthy tool, a worthy uh, investment of time well it's also a really interesting subject to me because um on one hand i have a father who is my hero who who had a phd and two master's degrees uh my my mother had a doctorate as well i, I have a pretty highly pedigreed family um i have been very successful in the business world and um, have never spent a minute in a college classroom. And so I don't, I don't think very highly of those who believe, and this is word for word, Greg Bonson, those who believe college guarantees you success or those who believe college is necessary for success. Those are two different errors, and they're both very common. Now, that said, if we take a step back in the macro data, most people in poverty don't have college degrees. But if we want to be really honest, most people in poverty don't have high school diplomas. So it's a little disingenuous to, to point out that their poverty is related to lack of college degree because it's usually not. It's usually related to something much more foundational and fundamental and early in life than the fact that they didn't go to college when they were 23 is that they had other things break down when they were 15, 16, 17, 18. But that's a macro comment. On a micro basis, I do not like it when I hear churches giving advice uh, as if one size fits all. Yeah, I don't like it when I hear people giving advice. Um, you know, for one thing, I want to have Christian uh, men and women in the medical space and you're not going to practice medicine without going to medical school. 
So, you know, there's certain examples where the credentialing and the, and the formal education matters. I think we need um, real serious intellectuals, uh, think tanks, and, and in uh, the academy. And so there's a really important place for college. In entrepreneurial fields, ironically, I think it becomes less valuable. Um, I think risk takers are the need of the hour. There's room for business degrees. There's room for MBAs. They mean a lot less, in my opinion, than they used to. Um, I, I run, I, we manage over $5 billion at my company. I have 60 employees and I never really care much about where they went to school and so forth. We have some people that went to really, really elite universities and we have people like the guy who runs the company, me, who didn't go to college. I, I, uh, am in all of the above camp. However, when you tie it to the financial ramifications, I think it's like anything else a, a person is supposed to do. As a wise steward, you do a cost benefits analysis. You know, where are the passions and skills of my, of my kid? And where does it require this? Where does it require that? Where is a loan going to fit in or not fit in? Hopefully not fit in. Where do we have the resources to help pay? Where, where will the kid work and be able to cover it? You, you, there's just a whole lot of variables mm-hmm. and they're totally distinct family to family. And so that's why I resist the one size fits all. Yeah, I, I very much agree. Kind of um, in the same sort of area, there is a lot of online chatter. And I always have to say online chatter because there's only a certain segment of society that chatters online. <laughs> so, um, but there's this idea that the younger generations are kind of financially screwed, that they're not going to be able to get houses, that they're not going to ever uh, have the same amount of wealth that my generation or uh, in particular, there's a sort of generational animosity towards the boomers and some of the younger generations. How, how dire is the younger generation's financial situation? Is this, this part of a, a standard cycle that we've already seen before in history, or is this something unique? Um, how much of that talk is justified? Well, it's a little bit of both in this sense that um, no, there's nothing new under the sun. And so there's some version of these different challenges that we've always seen before, but they are manifested differently. And, and um, my own view is that to the extent there is something that is harder right now at a macro level, uh, like systemically more challenging because of uh, less affordability in housing, or, or because of higher healthcare costs or student debt or whatnot, those things are accompanied by a bigger challenge to step up and overcome it. So even if I bought into the narrative that the next generation screwed, I don't buy into the narrative that the next generation screwed because what that next generation could always do or the cream of the crop from it is exactly, by the way, what they will do. Mm-hmm. The cream of the crop will say, I won't be a victim. Yeah. I don't accept that conclusion. I, uh, yeah, I guess it's a little unfair that my mom and dad went to college for 10,000 and I had to go to college for 60,000 a year. It's a little unfair. Mom and dad bought their first house for 150 grand and I got to buy my first house for 800 grand or whatever. Um, but you know, mom and dad also made 40 grand at their first job and Johnny might make a hundred grand at his first job. Uh, you know, there's two sides to this coin, the real wages. Um, you know, you have higher prices and you have higher wages. And so it's important for us to not let our attraction to self-pity get in the way of the economic reality 
there are structural challenges that are harder. And affordability of housing and, and the absurd con of the economic model around higher education are two examples. But there is um, uh, you know, 50 million more jobs, 50 million more jobs than there was. I'm a little older than you, but I'm a Gen Xer kind of in the middle of the pack. I was born in 1974, but you, you could get a job uh, for $40,000 in the 1970s, and you were in a really good, healthy, respectable middle-class uh, position, and, could, and, and today you could get that doing coffee at Starbucks. I mean, it's just basically a different world in a lot of ways, but now there's 50 million more jobs that will pay greater than that level, that will provide different opportunities. Our problem societally right now is really not those who want a job and want a marketable skill and are unable to find one. We have more jobs than we have people. Our problem is a mismatch of skill set, that our workforce, the needs in our workforce have gotten more technical. And so there are people on the lower um, spectrum of marketable skills that it's harder to find sustainable work that will help them raise a family. There's a lot of policy mistakes that have happened uh, to create that. And then there's a lot of personal decisions people made. Um, and, and most of it is relegated to men, young, unmarried men. Uh, made decisions that make them less marriable. And when you're less marriable, you're less hireable. And when you're less hireable, you're less marriable. That's it. Yep. That's the vicious cycle. It's the ugliest, ne- it's the ugliest negative feedback loop in contemporary society that a young man who is not marriable is not hireable. And if they're not hireable, they're not marriable. Mm-hmm. 100%. Let me ask this um, for you personally. What are some routines or habits? that have really paid dividends in your life? Just personal routines or habits that have helped you be successful as a businessman? Uh, I think one of the biggest ones I don't take for granted, I don't take credit for. I think there is a sense in which it sounds like it's a little personal discipline and sacrifice, but honestly, God just wired me the way he wired me. And I got this 100% from my late father. But um, I think being a morning person is a huge advantage. Um, I personally am up at 3.45 every morning, no matter where I am, like local time. So I spend about half my time in New York and half my time in California. And whatever time zone I am in, I get up at 3.45 that time. I don't think most people are going to do that. And I don't think most people should or need to do that. But, you know, guys sleeping until 8.30, 9 o'clock in the morning, going to work at 11, and then wondering why they can't get ahead. I don't really know what to say about it. If your job doesn't need you in till a little later in the morning, just get up early anyways and go learn something, do something, grow, uh, expand your horizons. But the early mornings are a, uh, a really pivotal time, I think, for self-advancement. And, and it's been a huge uh, advantage in my life and career is uh, being just a very early morning person. The other piece, too, is I think um, the Bible says six days I shall work. So, uh, you know, some people focus on the other part of that, which is to rest on one day. And there's a big tradition in, in a lot of Reformed theology to kind of recover a certain degree of Sabbatarianism. And, and I think that's all important, but it's still focusing on that one-seventh of the requirement 
and not the six-sevenths requirement, which is mathematically inferred, that if we believe we're supposed to be resting one day, we're also supposed to be working six days. That doesn't mean you got to go to the office six days a week. But I think devoting oneself to productivity for six-sevenths of the time, um, I think that's a pretty good practice. Some may not believe it's normative. I do think it is. But even if one doesn't think it's normative, I can sit, I can at least at bare minimum share it as a best practice, as a competitive advantage. Uh, in my field, I do not run into people that work as much as I do or my team does. And, and that affords us a little head start that um, I, I can't really underestimate. I agree. Uh, one question I get asked a lot when I'm doing interviews uh, for the organization I work for is what's work-life balance like? And I know what they're asking, but what I always want to say, you know, work is life, <laughs> you know, like work is good. Like, uh, so uh, if you mean, do you get to see your family? Absolutely. Um, but um Sometimes I hear the work-life ba- balance as if there's like some sort of 50-50 that we're to, to maintain. And uh, I work 10 hours most days, at least, I think, somewhere in that area. Um, and that's about what it takes to to get the job done. And and, uh, and it's satisfying. It's well, I, 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 haven't sent, I haven't sent you a copy of my book yet. I need to do that because, you know. There's a whole chapter in the book called Destroying the Work-Life Balance. <laughs> Good. And I like I, it already. What, what, I'm, yeah, what I'm seeking to do is, first of all, though I guess great minds think alike, Pastor, because um, that's the biggest problem with that language is in the language. Yeah. It pits work versus life. Absolutely. And what, what if you said to your spouse, um, hey, I need to kind of work on uh, a little marriage life balance. You know, I don't feel like I'm balancing my life enough with, with the stuff I got to do with you, my spouse. <laughs> right. I mean, it, it would be highly offensive, at least to our, our uh, soulmates. Um, work and life are not something you need to be balanced together because uh, work is a key integral part of our life. Here is what um, the paradigm is work, rest. Yeah. Not work, life, work, rest. So what is that paradigm in the Bible? I just said it. Six sevenths work, one seventh rest. That's that's the model that was set by our creator. And so uh, even if I don't want to get into the debate about what's legalistic and what's normative, what's required, just simply as a model that exists out there, that paradigm is a pretty good baseline from which to start the conversation. What work-life balance is, is not about balancing work and life. It's about the implication that work is a nuisance in my life and I need to fit it in somewhere, but I would like an employer to tell me how I can still get my yoga classes in and, and other recreational and leisurely activities. And I don't want to have to pay too many dues. It's a byproduct of a spoiled, rotten society that has too much money that they could ever dare say, can you imagine our grandparents asking an employer What's the work-life balance like? I mean, it's just incomprehensible. And yet we, are, we have been so fruitful as a society that one of the byproducts is we now have 26-year-olds asking what the work-life balance is. <laughs> I, I had one ask me, um, 
uh, how often do we do overtime? Like how often do we work over 40 hours? It's well, you know, most weeks I'd say most people work 45 to 50 hours. Oh, I don't know if that's going to work out. And I was like, oh, okay. Well, um, why? Uh, well, I'm just really involved in this board game group. It's kind of a ministry. And I thought, okay, you won't be working for us. Uh, so yeah. if you, if you're going to prioritize a board game group over this, first off, if you work your butt off, you'll be able to buy a, you'll be able to facilitate all that all you want down the line. You'll be able to, uh, buy the sort of time that you're, you're really looking for right now. But well, tell everyone where they can find your book and, and just why they, uh, who should read it and why. Well, uh, the website for the book uh, is fulltimebook.com, and the book is coming out. It'll be uh, at people's doorsteps on February 6th. It comes out after the holidays. Uh, there'll be quite a bit of, of press and attention and speaking and so forth around it in, in the next couple of months and coming up to the release. Um, it is the most theological book I've written. There's plenty of economic data, sociological data. What I state as the objective of the book was that I wanted to make an economic, theological, cultural, and ontological case about work. And that's the key thing um, about the distinct view. You mentioned Tim Keller earlier. Tim, Tim was a very good friend of mine and somebody that I respected a great deal. And, and his work in the field of work was very good. His book, Every Good Endeavor, was a great book. But Tim never talked about work in the context of economics. He, he, he was sort of a little um, gun shy, I think, about going into those harder questions. I think part of it was his pastoral context in a place like Manhattan yeah, that doesn't right. exactly struggle for that, doesn't exactly struggle for lack of ambition. Um, but you know, for people that are pastoring folks, that then say, I'm a little, I'm not too, too into my job because I have a board game club or I play a lot of Fortnite with my friends. It's a little easier to say, you know, Hey, maybe we need to ramp up the ambition a little here, guys. Um, I, I really feel that what I tried to do with this book is do something different than what guys like Keller done with theirs or something that a lot of the really kind of bad books out there have done which is just sort of reiterate the vanilla claim that God cares about your work, which I think is great. And a lot of people have said it, but I wanted to tie it in ontologically, what it means to our very being, our very identity. And this line that is so easy for evangelicals to say that um, your identity is not in what you do. Your God, you know, no, this notion of, well, you're a big successful lawyer and you're just a plumber. Well, those things are not who we are in Christ. They're, they're, it's not really the point. Nobody actually believes, nobody, no. that what we do is unrelated to who we are. We know that what we do is connected to what we are. But you know who doesn't have an elitist view of work? That doesn't believe that the corner office lawyer has a great identity and the lowly plumber doesn't the person who doesn't believe that is someone with our view of work who is advocating for the dignity and majesty and god-given purpose of work regardless of the socioeconomic context i have such a high view of work that i couldn't care less if someone's a plumber or a big wall street finance guy i think both things 
represent the meeting of needs of humanity, an element for God-given productivity in our daily ventures, our daily endeavors. That's what I think God made us for. And so I'm excited to try to start this conversation to reclaim this focus. I think it's been lacking in the church for too long. And, and hopefully some of these things that we've talked about might uh, inspire people to check out the book a little more. What is the name of the book, David? Full-time work and the meaning of life. Gotcha. And, and for those who don't know, it, it, it was meant to be a very modest jab. Um, the Christian world has sold 1 million copies of a book called Halftime, Moving from Success to Significance. And I try never to speak ill of the dead, but uh, the author of the book, Bob Buford, died a couple years ago. There was a lot of things that Bob did in his life and work that I think were commendable. But this general dualist implication that half of our life is spent kind of working and then the second that will enable the second half of our life to actually do important things like be there for our grandkids and 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 go on a missions trip to Africa and and help financially support our church or sit on a nonprofit board or what have you. Um, I think it's a tragic view of life. It's decidedly non-Kyperian, um, non-reformed, and, and it's decidedly non-Christian. Remember All Chuck of our lives are significant. Chuck Smith once said, yeah. I was at a, somewhere where he was, and someone asked when he was going to retire because um, I came from the Calvary Chapel movements where I got saved. And uh, Chuck had to be like 70-ish at the time, and he was man, he was going hard. He said, I'll retire when I'm tired. <laughs> like, so the mm-hmm. idea for him was like, I'm just going to keep working until I can't work. Like, uh, he had no view of retirement. He knew, like, my grandfather was a lot like Chuck. He was a, he was a retired correctional officer, but he ran, my, ran the farm I grew up on. And uh, it was when they sold that farm and he didn't, he just had a little half acre instead of his 15 acres. That is when that man started to die. And he was in his seventies. He was tougher than any man I ever knew. And he loved working the field, taking care of the cows and the horses and all that stuff. And uh, when he lost his work, um, that is uh, really when he started to go down. And I remember even as a little boy, not, not church or anything, realizing how important it was uh, for man to have good work to do. Well, um, uh, once again, you've accidentally struck upon an actual chapter in the book. I have a whole chapter saying um, against retirement, rethinking the idea of a 30-year vacation. And I would argue that people like your grandfather, they not only end up start to, d- to die at that point because they lost their work, but because they lost their purpose. And, and yet there's two victims. It, 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 when we have a 65-year-old who has a lot to offer, uh, a lot of experience and expertise in a vocational area, and they go to the sideline, not only do they lose because they've lost purpose and utility and usefulness and dignity, but we all lose. Because now I got to hear what we need to do next from a 26-year-old when I want to hear from a 66-year-old but we took them out of the game. Now, do I think that the 76-year-old needs to be on the farm and in the factory and doing all the physical labor they can't do anymore? Of course not. But there are ways 
to approach this that do not center around the notion of retirement being, this is really a baby boomer concept, a 30-year vacation. That I, I partied in college, then I went and got serious and worked for 30 years so I could save up the money to go party again my, in my senior years, whatever that may mean. And maybe instead of uh, fraternity parties, now it's a golf course and bridge yeah. clubs and what yeah. have you. But, but recreation and leisure as our birthright, um, it, it, it's simply doing a lot of damage. And you, I see it all the time, Michael, people who pass away within a year of leaving their work because they were used to being needed yep. and they're not needed anymore. And I just, I, I think it's entirely unhelpful and, and uh, there are ways to kind of strike the right uh, chord here with, with where we still are getting usefulness from people, but not saying they have to come suit up and, and show up at the job full time. You know, there's ways to sort of, I think, exercise some wisdom in this. Mm-hmm. Well, Every time someone says you're not your work, I think my last name's Foster. That comes from the English for Forrester, right? Like literally our last names. When Paul's warning someone, he says, uh, beware of Alexander the coppersmith. Like people just for ages have been known by what they do. It's like our last name. It's uh, one question I like to ask in an interview to find what people value is I'll say, uh, let's not talk about your resume stuff, your work history. Let's talk about kind of your personal story. Who are you? What are the things you care about outside of work? Uh, that's really hard for men to answer. And it's especially hard for blue collar men to answer that question. And I'm just doing it because I want to know what they care about, um, kind of big picture of core values wise. Uh, but I actually respect that it's a struggle, right? Oh, I don't know. I think of myself as, think of myself as a technician. I think, you know, and, um, I think we are wired that way. It's, it's clear to anyone with eyes. Mm-hmm. Well, I'm excited about your book. Yep. Thank you for making so much time to come on. I'll put it in the show notes and God bless you and God bless your family. Thank you. Thanks so much for having me. I'm Michael Foster and I appreciate you listening. You can help this podcast out by simply leaving a rating, a review, or sharing it with a friend. Until next time, don't just be a hearer of the word, but be a doer of the word. Mm-hmm.